Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21. Uh, This morning we'll be looking at verses 21 to 31, finishing the chapter. This afternoon we'll look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Uh, So here we are, beginning in verse 21. Let's hear God's word. Isaiah says, How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the Mighty One of Israel. Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together, with none to quench them. This is God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing. Our God, we remember your instruction that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from your mouth. We thank you for this word. We pray, Lord, that you would feed us. Feed us as we look to the bread of life, Jesus Christ, the one who came down from heaven. And we pray that you would feed us by your word, nourish us spiritually, that we might live, that we might live in a way that pleases you. We ask for your help. And we need your Holy Spirit. So give us the Spirit of Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Some of you may know these terms. Uh, You may have heard of the church militant and the church triumphant. Uh, If you Google this and look on Wikipedia, you'll get a third Uh, description. They call it the church penitent, but we don't get our theology from Wikipedia. Uh, The church penitent is a reference to purgatory, uh, that the Roman Catholics believe that the church uh, goes to purgatory and has a time where you have to burn off your sins. You have to work off or pay off your sins, but that idea is not in the Bible. The Bible teaches that the church is either the church militant or the church triumphant. And so the church militant is what we are right now. 
We are militants. That word, you might uh, hear it and it sounds like the word military. Military is, is those who fight. And so the church militant is the church that is fighting. And we're not fighting a crusade. We're not going to take the Holy Land. We're not fighting with uh, weapons that are physical, but we're fighting a spiritual war. We're fighting the good fight of faith, fighting against the devil and against sin. And so this is where we are now. This is where all the church of Christ around the world, uh, this is what we're doing. We are militants. As the song says, amid toil and tribulation and tumults of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. And so we're waiting for that consummation, but right now we are amid toils and tribulations and war. So that's the church militant. And then there's the church triumphant. The church triumphant is those who are in the Lord, who have died and have gone to be with the Lord, that Hebrews 12 calls the spirits of the just men made perfect. They are there at the heavenly Zion, worshiping God around his throne, and they've triumphed. They've triumphed over their sin. Uh, they've triumphed in following Christ until the very end. And so the church is triumphant. And the church will be triumphant. Uh, one day when Christ returns and gets rid of sin altogether, all of us, all who are in Christ, will be part of that church triumphant. And so today we're going to look at both the church militant and church triumphant. In verses 21 to 31 this morning, we look at the militant aspect of it. And then this afternoon, as we look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, we see the church triumphant. And so you've got to come back for the afternoon. And I have to admit that the afternoon will be more encouraging than the one this morning. This, the one this morning can, can be discouraging. It's, we talk about the hardships of being the church militant. But we need both. We need to understand that the church is both. Because understanding that the church will one day be triumphant and that those who are in Christ who have gone to be with him, they are triumphant, that gives us hope. That gives us hope as we battle through the weariness of the world, as we deal with our own sin, as we look at the evil that is in the world. We need to have a vision of the hope that the church will triumph. And that's why Isaiah 2 is such a great passage. But we don't just need to have the future hope. We also need to realize the reality of the world that we live in. And so we need to understand that the church now is the church militant. We have not reached glory yet. We have not reached perfection yet. And so when you come to church and you realize there is imperfection, we should say, well, what did you expect? Of course, there will be sin in the church. Of course, there will be sin in the church at large, and there will be divisions over doctrines and practice. And of course, we continue to fight with our own sin. And so understanding that we are still the church militant keeps us from being naive 
about what to expect here in this life. And so this is what we want to look at this morning, the church militants. It tells us that we need to watch. We need to think of ourselves as soldiers. Is that how you think of your life? Is that how you think of your life as a Christian, that you are a soldier in a battle? And as a church member, your job is to fight the battle for the church. So here's the main point of verses 21 to 31, summed up by uh, an Isaiah scholar named Edward Young. He said, even the purest churches on earth may degenerate into a synagogue of Satan. Even the purest churches on earth may degenerate into a synagogue of Satan. And so we need to be realistic that although we can say, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of purity in our church, that's great, we, we really love that. But we need to be militant, we need to be watchful, that even the purest churches on earth may not degenerate into a synagogue of Satan. So here we see in this passage the faithful church that becomes unfaithful, that God then purifies, and it becomes faithful again by God's grace. So let's begin looking at these verses. And first we see the unfaithful city in verses 21 to 23. So notice he starts with the word how. How. Uh, That is a lament. Uh, Lamentations, the book of Lamentations, as he's lamenting the fall of Jerusalem. You can see he begins many of those chapters with the word how. And we have a similar saying of lament when we say something like, how the mighty have fallen. It's not a question that we're asking. Isaiah here is not asking, how did this faithful city become so unfaithful? He's grieving. He's lamenting. It's like he's saying, I can't believe that I'm watching this happening. The faithful city has become unfaithful. And so he uses the image here of the bride who is unfaithful in verse 21. Uh, It's a common image, many of you know in the Old Testament, that Israel becomes the bride of God. And then it's also very common to read about how Israel is an unfaithful bride. You see that in the story of Hosea and Gomer. You see it in Ezekiel chapter 16. And so we see it again here. Israel, the bride of God, has become unfaithful, has committed spiritual adultery. And notice here that he's talking about the city. And so here we're looking at Jerusalem. Jerusalem represents the whole kingdom of Judah. So when was Jerusalem faithful? Most likely he's talking about the time of David. When King David uh, captured Jerusalem, he made it the capital city of Israel. And he instituted the right worship of God. He brought the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. and And he had Solomon eventually build the temple. And so that was the golden age for Jerusalem. They had the right worship. There were no alliances with foreigners to to, uh, look to help from the outside and other gods for help. But they worshipped God 
in purity and in truth. They were faithful. King David led them to be the faithful city. But now, he says, murderers lodge in her. She was full of justice. She had righteousness, but now murderers lodge in her. She has become unfaithful. And the mention of murderers is probably a way of saying this is the tip of the iceberg. If murderers lodge in her, that means that all other kinds of things are going on in Jerusalem. And notice the word lodge, right? It's not just a a bad place where occasionally some murders happen, but murderers lodge there. It happens all the time, and it's accepted as normal. And we see in verse 21 that he's probably also summarizing all Ten Commandments. With saying that she has become unfaithful, he's saying they've broken the first commandments. They've had other gods. And so that represents the first five commandments, the first half of the law. And then with murder, which is the sixth commandment, he's saying they've, rep- they've broken the second half of the law of how we interact with other people. And so, basically, through and through, Jerusalem is a place of evil and wickedness. The faithful city has become unfaithful. Well, then in verse 22, he describes it as silver that has become dross, and the best wine being mixed with water, being watered down. And so this reminds us of the things that we looked at last week. That these people are very sinful and very immoral, but they look righteous. They look religious. They look like worshipers of God. You can look at a piece of silver and not be able to tell if it's corrupted, if it has dross in it, until maybe you melt it down. You can look at wine and it looks red or purple, whatever. It it looks like wine. You can't tell necessarily that it's been watered down until you taste it. And so that's what he's saying about Jerusalem. Outwardly religious. Outwardly looks good. But inwardly corrupt. Even the princes, the leaders, the kings are rebels And they love bribes. They are corrupt. They don't bring justice to the fatherless and the widow. So here's the lesson. The faithful cities can become unfaithful. Those who have all the privileges of being God's people, like Israel was, can become unfaithful. They have the law. They have the temple. They have the word. They have kings. They become unfaithful. And so we need to be militant. We need to be militant in our own lives to make sure that our love for God is pure, that we truly are loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, and that we are loving one another. We need to make sure that our own lives are pure and that our church is pure in its worship and its doctrine. And in following Christ and obeying his commands. We are in a war. And we must fight the fight. We must keep going. We must always be ready for the battles wherever they come up to fight them. 
Christian, you need to persevere. You can start out faithful and then become unfaithful. So in the Christian life, the the proof that you are truly saved is that you persevere to the end. And for the church, the proof of a church that is truly being faithful and honoring God is that it continues to be faithful. Just like with Jerusalem and King David, we could say that churches can begin and God might give them a great leader. But the church is then called not just to be faithful while they have the great leader, but to continue from generation to generation. I thought of a contrast of two churches in London. The first church uh, was started in 1668. It was one of the first what they call particular Baptist churches in England. Started in 1668. That's a 350 years ago. That's a very long time ago. It was pastored by a man named Benjamin Keach, well-known Baptist. And then later pastored by men like John Gill for 50 years. And another man, John Rippon, and another guy you probably have heard of, Charles Spurgeon. And these were pastors, 50 years after 50 years, I mean, for generations and generations. And now that church is now the Metropolitan Tabernacle, pastored by a guy named Peter Masters, that, that is still a faithful church since 1668. There's another church in London. Westminster Chapel, and also pastored by some people you may have heard of, G. Campbell Morgan, and then most famous was Martin Lloyd-Jones. But about 20 or 30 years after Lloyd-Jones stopped preaching, uh, the church was changed completely. Uh, A new pastor, his name was R.T. Kendall, he was very charismatic and They were part of this thing called the Toronto Revival where people were laughing in the middle of church services like uh, uncontrollably and just rolling around the floor laughing. And and, and, in Martin Lloyd-Jones Church at at this time later, they're they're cheering things like, give me a J, give me an E, give me an S, Jesus. You know, this is their worship from the great preaching and worship of Lloyd-Jones to give me a J, give me an E in about 20 years. And so it's a great contrast. Two churches in London. One becomes, one is faithful for hundreds of years, and the other one becomes unfaithful after just a few decades. And so it's a warning to us to not become sleepy, to always stay awake, to always realize that the church of Christ is a spiritual organism. This belongs to Christ. See, it's not about a person or it's not about an activity that people do. This is what people think. They think, well, our church is successful because we had this guy or because we did this thing. Lots of churches, they think, Well, if our church is going to be successful, we just need to hire a youth pastor. And then the youth pastor will, will get kids in the door. And people think that's the answer. 
They don't realize there's spiritual things going on in the church. There are spiritual problems in the church that must be fought, that must be gone after. And so for a church to remain faithful, the answer is prayer. Pray. Pray for the church. Pray that Satan's spiritual forces would not attack the church through false doctrine or through false worship or through disunity or through lack of love and especially when there is prosperity in the church especially when things are going well we need to pray that those things that are where we being faithful that we would continue to be faithful for generation after generation because this is a spiritual issue so, Jerusalem, the unfaithful, the, the, the faithful city became unfaithful. Now we're going to see that Christ deals with his churches when they are unfaithful. We see this in verses 24 to 31, uh, how God purifies the church. So, Christ deals with his churches. Let's look at verses 24 and 25. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, uh, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. Now, first, first in verse 24 uh, he begins with a, a unique way of piling up three different names for God. The Lord, Adonai, then Yahweh of hosts. Those are very common in the book of Isaiah. But here's an uncommon one that he adds in here. A third one, the mighty one of Israel. And this title for God is so uncommon. It only happens six times in the Old Testament. And the Five times that it happens, it refers to the mighty one of Jacob. And so really, this is the only time you see this title in the whole Old Testament. The mighty one of Israel. So why does Isaiah bring out this title? And why does he bring it up after already mentioning God's name twice? It's, he's obviously wanting us to focus and emphasize this point that he is the mighty one of Israel. But what's funny, not funny, but it was sad, <laughs> is that the mighty one of Israel, you would think it would mean that he is going to fight on behalf of Israel. The mighty one of Israel is going to protect you. He's going to keep you safe from all your enemies. And so Isaiah sort of draws our attention. He, he lifts up the name of God. He is the mighty one of Israel. And then look what, what this mighty one says. I will get relief from my enemies. He uses the word ah. Remember the word hoy. Probably remember that word. I, I, I can't believe that I'm going to have to do this. But I am going to have to get relief. From my enemies. The mighty one says. Relief or rest. It's the word for what Noah was named after. Because Noah 
would bring rest to the earth, and he brought rest to God. As God looked at the wickedness of the earth, he saw a righteous man, Noah, and Noah would bring him rest. God looks at the multitude of the sacrifices and the tramplings of the courts and Israel, and it's a burden upon him, and he needs rest from his burden, metaphorically speaking. God is looking for relief, rest from his enemies. He's going to avenge himself on his foes. But what does he say in verse 25? I will turn my hand against you. He's addressing Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that God chose, the city that he founded, the faithful city who has now become unfaithful. He says, I will turn my hand against you. He doesn't say, I'm the mighty one of Israel who will turn my hand against Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and Babylonians who come to invade you. No, he turns his hand against his own people. He is going to get relief from his enemies, and the enemies are among the people of God. His enemy is Jerusalem. could say that God has enemies in his church. Churches can become unfaithful. And so Christ deals with them. He gets, he gets relief. You know, remember what he says to the church in Laodicea. He says, I want to spit you out of my mouth. It's like I'm sick of you. I'm, you're disgusting to me. So I got I to gotta do something about this. So he turns his hand against his Churches that claim his name, that once were faithful. So here in verse 25, we see God purifies. God purifies his people. The image here in verse 25 of smelting the dross is the image of melting down the metal and a hot furnace to separate the metal so that you know what is the real silver and what is the corrupt mineral, the other minerals. And so you remove the dross, you remove the alloy through this painful process of God's judgment. So that's what God does for his churches. He brings them through painful times, painful processes of purification when they are unfaithful. Christ purifies his churches. Sometimes you see this in denominations. I think we can say, as, as we look at what we call mainline Protestant denominations today, uh, that have essentially forsaken the word of God, and some of them are just complete heretics, and many of them at least have just don't believe the word of God and don't preach the word of God. And we can see in our country how these denominations are dying very, very quickly. And I think we can say that's Christ purifying his church there are people in our country who claim to be christians and yet have totally forsaken the word of god and christ is dealing with them obviously that doesn't mean that in america every church that closes closes because it's unfaithful Uh, sometimes unfaithful churches are big but christ will deal with them somehow And I think we can see in denominations today, Christ closing them down for their infidelity. 
He does that for local churches sometimes. It's the word of God that is powerful. It's the word of God that saves people. When the word of God is no longer preached, those churches are going to die. Nobody wants to go to a social club every Sunday. No, people go to church on Sunday because they want the word of God. Those are the churches that are going to draw people. And they draw people by God's work and salvation. We can see it in local churches through the process of church discipline. It's Christ who is purifying his churches through church discipline. Our, our role as church members is just to discern the mind of Christ according to the word of God. What the word of God calls sin and immorality, that's what we do not tolerate because the word of God says it's immoral. And so, so we have to follow the instructions of Christ in the practice of church discipline. And that is one way Christ keeps his church pure. So he purifies. He also purges. So, you know, the image of purification means that you get rid of the dross and the pure metal, the good stuff, remains. And so the, the godly, faithful people and the godly churches, they remain. But I'm using the word purge in a different sense. What gets purged is the dross. And the dross gets burnt up. It gets thrown in the trash. And so this is what God says he's going to do for the dross of Jerusalem. In verses 28 to 31. We'll read those and then come back to verse 26 later. Uh, so 28, he says, But rebels and sinners shall be broken together. You see the contrast? They're not going to be purified. They're going to be broken. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. You see in that last verse, they become tender, they become fuel for the fire. They're, they're not purified and, and left remaining. No, they are burnt up. The idols, the works of, of these people, they become spark. They become more fuel for the fire. So they will burn together. So what's going on here, you might be wondering, with these oaks and these gardens? Well, uh, these are examples of the immorality and the false worship of the people of Israel. Um, they would often do their false worship and then just come to the temple and and do the right things, but along with their immorality and their idolatrous worship. And so they would often go to the oaks, these gardens and these oak trees, because they thought that these would be places of fertility. And this is a common ancient practice of worship, is to have shrines by the oak trees, because then you could become fertile. And so they did all sorts of Immoral, immoral acts there in their idolatrous worship by the oaks. And so that's why God says you'll be ashamed of the oaks because you were so shameless in your immorality there under those oak trees. Now you're going to be ashamed and you're going to blush because you didn't blush 
about what you did in those gardens and those false worship. And the result will be death. Verse 30, the oak that you thought would bring you life is going to be like a dead leaf. It's, it's not going to bring you fertility. It's going to bring you death. And the garden that you went to for life is going to be waterless. It's going to be a place of death. So that's the point here. Death. Death comes to the rebels. Death comes to the immoral unrepentant. So it's the same city. Outwardly, the same people who would claim to be the people of God. In our, in our terms today, we could say two churches, or even people within the church. But, but there's a church, and they call themselves a church. They claim to be Protestants. They claim to have the Bible. And some churches, and some people in those churches, they will get burned up. They will be purged. Others will be purified. So what's the difference? It's repentance. It's whether you respond to the judgment and the correction with repentance or with hard-heartedness and continuing to rebel and refusing the work of God and the Holy Spirit. So we need to submit to the word. We as a church need to always be under the authority of the word of God, always being corrected by the word of God. And in our own personal lives as Christians, we always want to be corrected by the word of God to tell us what is sin and what is right, to ask the spirit to search us and try us and reveal if there is sin in us that we might repent, that we might become more pure. We don't want to be the dross. So here's the the point of, of this part of the passage. Don't be the dross. Don't be the one contributing the dross to the people of God in the church. You do your work to maintain sound doctrine and God honoring worship and peace and unity in the church and love for one another let's not be the ones adding more and more sins so that then God will look at us and say I have to do something about this I'm going to have to purify this church because of what started with, with me with you so let us be pure so that God does not purify us. Third and last, we see then the faithful city. So God is going to purge the city and then she will become faithful. Let's go back to verse 26 and 27. God says, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. What a great promise in verse 26. You will be called 
the faithful city. What a difference from verse 21. The faithful city became so unfaithful. And now she will be called the faithful city. And notice, it is the grace of God that is going to do this. This is God who is going to do this work. God will restore their judges and counselors. God will redeem Zion by justice. It's only by God's grace that he keeps his church faithful. That he does the work when it's needed of purifying the church so that then she will be triumphant one day. She will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Now, when is this going to happen? Some people think this is literal Jerusalem, physical Jerusalem, there in the land of Israel. And some people say, well, there was the exile and they went away and then they came back. And and, uh, maybe you've heard the saying, the exile cured the Jews of idolatry. And there's truth to that. They, they did not worship idols anymore after the Babylonian exile. Uh, but that's not what this is about. Because even when they came back, they were still unfaithful. Uh, if you read Malachi, Malachi's got some pretty hard words for Israel and how they are not honoring God and their worship is still corrupt, even though they aren't worshiping idols. So this isn't when Jerusalem comes back. Uh, when Israel comes back to Jerusalem and rebuilds. We know this is not in Jesus' day uh, because Jesus also tells Israel in his day that they are corrupt and that they belong to their father, the devil. So what Jerusalem is this about? Well, Christ, when he comes on this earth, he establishes his church made up of Jews and Gentiles. And when Christ dies and rises from the dead and leaves his apostles and and sends the Holy Spirit to them, he is then beginning the New Testament church. And this is when the church is formed as the faithful people of God made up of Jews and Gentiles who trust in Jesus Christ and who are following his word. So who are the judges and the counselors in verse 26? They're the apostles. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church. And then the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so from the foundation of the apostles, they give us the word of God. And they tell us how a church should be faithful. And God starts faithful churches. And now here we are, 2023, and ever since those days of the apostles, if a church will just look to the Bible and look to the New Testament for what a church is supposed to be like and act like and what their leaders should be and, and who, they, who they should be and what they should be like, then you have faithful churches. And so God fulfills his promise to establish the faithful city, even though still mixed in with sin and we're not still yet the church triumphant, we can still be called faithful churches when we stick to the word of God. God says 
he's going to do this. And then notice in verse 27, he, he does it by his grace, by the work of Christ in the gospel. And you have four words there that you might usually associate with the New Testament and with justification. We have redemption. God is going to redeem his people. He's going to buy them out of their slavery like Hosea bought his unfaithful wife back to be with him. God's going to redeem us. He's going to pay the price so that we would belong to him and be faithful to him. He's going to redeem us by justice. God will show his justice to unjust people. You notice how in verse 23, he, uh, he rebukes them for their injustice. But God is going to deal with their injustice and show his justice at the same time. And yet also redeem them. He's going to show his righteousness by giving his people his own righteousness. And he's going to do this for those who repent. So this is what we see fulfilled in Christ. Christ takes the justice of God. He is treated as the one who is unjust and unfaithful. Christ is treated as if he is the unrighteous one, though he is the righteous one. And so... He pays for our sins on the cross and the punishment for our sins. He pays the price to release us from the slavery of God's judgment and the slavery of our sin. Christ does this work for those in her who repent. If you will turn away from your sin, turn to Jesus Christ, look to him and follow him, then you can be redeemed. By the justice of God shown on the cross. By the righteousness of Christ that he has earned in our place. And this is the only way to be saved. This is the only way to not be purged and burnt up altogether. Is to become part of his church. His people. By repenting and putting our trust in Jesus Christ. So the church. Zion is made up of those who are redeemed by the justice of God and the righteousness of Christ. So the city becomes faithful. We want to continue to be the faithful city. We want to continue to follow the word of God. I once read a book in seminary that I consider the worst book that I had to read in seminary. It was a church growth book. And it was, you know, this, the most famous church growth guru writing about the four stages that every church goes through. He says every church has birth, growth, uh, decline, and then closes. Every church he says, is going to go through that phase. And so obviously the point of his book is let's focus on how they grew. And if you do this, then your church is going to grow. Uh, So sorry for the next guy who's going to face the decline, but you, you do the growth. So that was the point of the book. Uh, So uh, the reason I didn't like this book is because maybe it is a descriptive book of what often does happen 
with many churches. Many churches might go through growth, decline, and then closing. But who says that's prescriptive? So that's my question for all these church growth people. Who says it has to be this way? The Spirit blows where he wills. The church belongs to Christ. Christ can do whatever he wants with a local church. Sure, he can close them whenever he wants. But he can also enable them to be faithful. We don't have a promise that this local church is always going to be open for the next 350 years like the Metropolitan Tabernacle is still open right now. We don't have that promise. We don't know if that's going to happen. But we can say, why not? How do we know? Why do we have to go through phases of decline and closing? What if we simply remain faithful? What if you purpose in your heart that you will be militant, watchful, Pray that our church would be faithful. And the church is each member. The church is not the pastors. The church is not pastors and deacons. The church is the members. So when we say that a church is to be faithful, what we really mean is that every member is to be faithful himself, herself, to Christ. So it starts with you being faithful to Christ, putting your sin to death, putting others' interests before your own. Westminster Chapel, Lloyd-Jones's church, the reason it became very chaotic 20 years later was because there was so, so much turnover in that part of London and, and in that church. So it really wasn't the same people 20 years later. Those people had not sat under Lloyd-Jones' teaching for decades. They were different people. It had the same name, Westminster Chapel. It was meeting in the same building, but it was not the same church. And so this is what a church needs to do to remain faithful, is that each person himself is faithful to Christ. And that we make sure we pass that down from one generation to the next. What it means to be faithful to Christ. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom and what churches he may devour. May we watch and pray that we might be found faithful. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the promise of your grace that your church will be the faithful city and can be faithful when it clings and stands upon the word of God. Lord, we pray for your grace. We need your help. We know the sinfulness of our own hearts. 
Lord, we pray that you would keep each one of us, each one of us who belongs to you. Keep us in your hand. Keep us in your love. We pray, Lord, that you would keep our church. We trust in you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to repent and even take us through the painful processes of purification if it's needed. But may we humble ourselves before you. May you cleanse us. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.